My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Hi Chris. We love Chris. Lots and lots and lots. My name is Solis, and I am an alcoholic. so grateful to the committee when they asked me to come speak. Seriously. Um, uh, Y'all don't even understand. Uh, I've been to Oklahoma several times, and every single time I've come, the people here have been so kind to me. So kind, right? And so when they called me and they said, would you come up? And I was like, man, aren't y'all tired of me? (laughs) Like, because I know I've met some of you already, right? And uh, some of you, uh, especially friends like Terry and Randy and certainly Chris have heard me at Infinitum and they're still here tonight for me and that, that means the world to me. And that's what we get in Alcoholics Anonymous. We get to build the fellowship that we crave and I've been given that and I'm so grateful. So thank you so much for asking me to come and um, and I'm thank glad you. to be here. Thank you. Okie, okie, okie. Yes, absolutely. It, the, the excitement and and the energy is absolutely contagious, and I am. Uh, this is my first time ever speaking at a YPAW conference. <laughs> Thank you for popping my cherry. <laughs> I don't think so. Exactly. So uh, I have this unorthodox way of telling my story. I'm actually going to uh, display a slideshow. I brought some slides with me today. And so uh, we are going to project those right up here. So um, 
we're going to start off uh, at the very beginning. So this first slide is uh, a Capitol Dome. That's the Capitol Dome of Sacramento, California. That's where I'm from. That's where I was born. That's where I was raised. Yes, some Californians in the house, right? Here's a picture of me and my family. So that's me. On the end there, I'm the tallest of five kids, so I'm the oldest. And that woman that's standing there with a drink in her hand on the end is my mother, the alcoholic. So I want you to know I'm not an alcoholic because I come from an alcoholic home. I am an alcoholic because I like the effect produced by alcohol. When it is put into my body, um, man, my favorite words become free, yours, and more. And I cannot help that. That's just my natural reaction, right? There's something I really want to get out of the way right up front, right? In Alcoholics Anonymous, we have singleness of purpose, which means we talk about alcohol. But you need to know that, like, when I'm talking about God, I'm using God in a generic term. It means everything. So whether your God is the universe or nature or Allah or some other manifestation, to me, it's just God. Alcohol has many manifestations. So I don't care for you if it came in a pill, a powder, a syringe, a leaf, whatever, right? It's all alcohol. I loved me some alcohol, and I love me some lumpy alcohol. Love me some lumpy alcohol. So when I talk about alcohol up here, please know I'm talking about all of it, right? So there's my first bar. It's called the Rec Room. Uh, it, it was dark and dank and scary and one of those kind of bars that you need a drink to go in and have a drink because it's so scary. You know, and um, I was 16 years old. I got myself a fake ID and I walked into that bar and I was home. I was home. And the reason that is, is because, you know, um, I was, well, I'll just show you a picture of me in high school. So that's me. And I'm going to tell you up front, that picture is photoshopped. I was not the head cheerleader of Del Campo High School, right? The real pictures are, that's me with my feet sticking up out of a trash can because they put me in upside down. That's me being stuffed into a locker, right? I had these characteristics that if you were become, if you were being kind, you would call them effeminate, right? But nobody was ever kind. They called me all other kinds of names. They never called me anything nice, right? And I spent most of my time, especially in high school, just trying to get from the next class to the next class without getting the crap beat out of me, right? And so um, when I walked into that first bar, it was a gay bar, and I was 16 years old, and all of a sudden I was popular. I don't know what happened. (laughs) I would just tell you that, you know, oh my God, I lived for this reception, you know, because I'd like walk in and everybody would be like, woo, so Lisa's here, you know the party's begun, right? And I lived for that reception. In fact, so much so that I found myself going to that bar seven nights a week just to get that reception, right? But here's what we know about alcoholism. It's a progressive disease. So progressively, my reception got less enthusiastic, right? (laughs) It went from like, woo, here she comes, woo, the party's begun to, here she comes. (laughs) Hang on to your drinks, your drugs, your wallets, and your husbands, because here she comes. Right? And I knew I had a problem. The capital dome of Sacramento. Sacramento was the problem. Like, if I could get my alcohol and my lumpy alcohol on somewhere else, 
it would be great. Here's the problem. I had no education. I had no job. I had no way of getting out of Sacramento. So I did what seemed perfectly natural to me. That's me in a Navy outfit. I joined the United States Navy. Yes, oh, S is right. Because, um, uh, yeah, the Navy didn't appreciate my effeminate characteristics either. And we had, we were at odds in, at many times, um, but at least I was, I had a life now and I was traveling around and, and doing things. And so, um, but here's uh, the difficulty. So I'm gonna show you a picture where I started drinking in Detroit, where I got stationed. So that's Tiffany's, and you might think, isn't that the same picture as the rec room? You would think, because wherever you go, there you are, and I found a bar that was just as nasty as the first one, right? And, and again, the same reception. Here he comes, woo! Here he comes, right? And I can't get away from myself, and I start to have problems. One of the problems I have is I can't show up to work on time. When you're in the Navy, this is a problem. They call it missing ships movement. It's a crime because they will not wait for you, right? Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I was in an aircraft squadron. I got to the airfield just in time to see the plane taking off without me, knowing I was have to sit on that tarmac for eight hours waiting for them to get back, and I will go be in trouble when they came back, right? And I went to see the captain on more than one occasion, and the Navy said, you might be an alcoholic. Now, here's some things that um, I've come to know in Alcoholics Anonymous. That is, if the Navy says you're an alcoholic, you probably are. Because, girl, you have to stand out in that crowd. Like, everybody drinks in the military, right? So, they do. And so, I was like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> to the bone, yes. It was like, ah, no. And so, they sent me to level one rehab, which is kind of like, you know, outpatient therapy. You sit in a circle, and you got an alcohol and drug counselor, and he's like, why do you think you're here? And why do you think you're here? And why do you think you're here? He gets to me and was like, why do you think you're here? I'm here because I got back problems. Namely, everyone's honored. If they go off it, I would be just fine. <laughs> Here's the problem with having alcoholism and not thinking you're an alcoholic. What we have here in Alcoholics Anonymous is a solution. What if you don't think you have a problem? Why would you want the solution, right? So I just didn't think I had a problem. I really didn't. And so in order for this to really take, and it says in our third tradition that the only requirement is the desire to stop drinking, I didn't have that. Now, the US Navy, my entire family, and ultimately the Lake Tahoe Police Department, they all had a desire for me to stop drinking. They stated so, right? But it wasn't gonna be enough until I had conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. And that was the struggle that resulted in my relapse that went on and on and on. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 19 years old. God, I wish I had had YPAW back then. I really do. Because I walked into a meeting in Detroit, Michigan, and it was filled with people, and everybody was so effing old. I mean, over 30, right? <laughs> and I sat down, and I had my cup of coffee, and I was like not feeling it, right? And there was this guy next to me, his hand was shaking, and I said, um, how, how long are you sober? And he's like, I've been sober for four days, and I've been sober for like two. And I was like, how old are you? And he said, I'm 54, and I was like, oh a long time before I have to be here and I left the meeting I left the meeting because I was like yeah if you've got if you can come in at 54 
why on earth would I be here at 19, right? I signed my own name on that little sign-in sheet that I had to get signed off, and I went back home. And so um, my life is filled with problems, right? They sent me to level two rehab, which was not so much fun. Now I'm confined to base, and I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous on the base, which are not anonymous. I mean, we're all wearing our uniforms with our names on it, you know? And we all know each other because we all work on the flight line together, right? And so um, it wasn't long after this that um, I was late to work yet one more time, right? And this time my, my chief petty officer was standing in the parking spot, and he said, why are you late today? And I said, um, I had a blowout on the way to work. I thought, oh, what a great lie that is. Because I'd slept in my uniform and I looked like I'd just changed the tire, right? And so he says, really? Oh my gosh, open up your trunk. I want to see your blown tire. So we opened up the trunk. And this is what we found. We found a, a blown tire because I'd had a blowout like a year earlier and never got it fixed. <laughs> because I am a procrastinating alcoholic. Right? And he said, you're off the hook this time. He said, but if you're late one more time, you're going to see the captain for the final time. And I don't care if he takes a stripe or throws you out because I'm done covering for you. And I really heard him. In that moment, I really, really realized the gig was up. Right? But the book says that we have an inability to recall the pain and suffering of just a few weeks or months ago. Right? Mine lasts seven and a half hours, apparently. Because it was only seven and a half hours later, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot be late to work tomorrow. That's why tonight I need to just go to the bar and have and I really meant it. I really meant it. I was going to go to the bar and have just one, right? And I remember those lights coming up at two. And I remember wondering, like, how did this happen, right? And I was driving home in conditions too uh, fast for a Michigan snowstorm. And I hit the button on the garage door for it to go up. And my car went into a skid. And I closed my eyes and held on tight. And when the car came to a stop, I opened my eyes and I was looking at the wall of the garage because my car had slid into the garage perfectly sideways. Like there was not much this room on either side. It was wedged in the garage. And I was like, you know, I'm the scarlet little hair of drinking. I'm like, tomorrow's another day. I can't deal with this right now. I'll deal with it tomorrow, right? And I come out, of course, late the next morning. I look at my car and I'm like, oh my God. This is the best excuse ever. No one's ever done this. So I called my chief and I was like, I can't make my cars in the house. I'm going to come see it, right? And he's like, yeah, you're going to level two rehab. So level two rehab was not fun. And um, it was shortly after this that I got arrested. Um, and uh, the charge uh, was homosexuality. This is the part where you're all supposed to be surprised and gasp. Right, I know. Girl, because, yeah, I was shocked. And so, um, yes, up until about eight years ago, it still was a crime. And so um, they came, they read me my rights, they put me in cuffs, they took me away. And uh, they put me in a room, made me take off my clothes to show that I wasn't wearing women's underwear. And what I'd like to tell people in the home, my home group is like, thank God that day I wasn't. <laughs> and so when it came time for discovery, you know, where both sides share the information, the the evidence that they have. Um, a lot of the evidence that the Navy had gathered against me was um, they had interviewed the people in my AA group on the base. And they had um, said, oh yeah, sometimes he uses the wrong pronouns. And 
And they called in my alcohol and drug counselor and asked to see my sign-in sheet on meetings. And they said, this one here, this live and let live meeting, what's that? And my alcohol and drug counselor was like, it's an AA meeting. And they're like, okay, well, look, we have this directory of meetings. What's the G next to the live and let live meeting mean? And he said, that's a gay meeting. And I want to tell you how much in that moment I hated Alcoholics Anonymous. I hated AA, right? You all told me when I got here that I was only the sickest of my secrets and that we have to practice rigorous honesty and that this is an anonymous program. What I want to tell you now is that I now know that we share in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The specifics are saved from my sponsor and the people that I've come to know and love and trust. But I don't... My sponsor used to say, girl, there's a reason your purse has a clasp on it. You don't need to dump it out on the table, <laughs> right? And I really take that to heart, right? So um, in the long run, I did not get thrown out of the Navy and I ended up serving for 12 years and served in Desert Storm and, and had a really nice career in the military and I loved my military career. I got stationed in San Jose, California and this is where I finally hit bottom. Um, what happened for me, though, was I had to, in order to stay in the Navy, I had to continue to um, go to meetings and get the card signed off. So that I, I said, any 12-step meetings? And they said, any 12-step meeting. And I was like, awesome. I'm going across the hall to the Al-Anon meeting because I showed you the picture of my mother. I qualify for that other program. So now I'm in Al-Anon, right? And I'm in Al-Anon for like two years getting this card signed off, right? which they thought was really weird in Al-Anon, by the way. And then <laughs> they invite me to speak as an Al-Anon speaker at an AA convention in Toronto, Canada. Toronto, gratitude, 1987. And I'm nervous because I've never spoken at a conference. And it was a big conference, like 400 people, right? And so I did what was perfectly natural to me. That's the hotel bar. <laughs> I stopped at the hotel bar on the way to the podium at the AA convention to get myself some liquid courage, right? And so I'm sitting up on the dais like these here with the AA speaker and she leans over and she goes, oh, honey, is, is that tequila? So I lean back at her and I said, oh, honey, is that jealousy? So the woman that was speaking that night, her name was Grady O'Hare, and she's now passed away, but she was really one of these foul-mouthed, in-your-face, take-no-prisoners lesbian that let me keep my face that night, right? And um, she, instead, she just sort of laughed. And when I got finished speaking, she said, you said in your story that you're coming back to California. I said, I did. And I want you to know how God works in my life. Grady O'Hare was from Sacramento, California. And so she said, when you come back to Sacramento, California, come visit us at the North Hall Group of Alcoholics Anonymous because we are saving a seat for you. It's got your name on it. And I was like, I know what that means. Here's the thing. The book says that more than any other, the alcoholic leads a double life. Oh, my God. That implies two. I wish I had just two lives, right? 
I had so many lives going on, it was impossible to keep them straight. I want you to know at the height of my drinking, right, I'm on this weapons load team and we're loading ordnance onto this aircraft every day with a stopwatch to try and get our time down. We're running these drills over and over and I keep looking at my watch, but it's not because I care how long this ordnance is taking. I'm a drag performer at a gay cabaret downtown and I gotta get my mascara on. Can we move this along? I got things to do, places to go, people to see. I got nighttime friends I can't introduce to my daytime friends. I got people at this job I can certainly never introduce to people at this job. And I'm pretty sure I told this group of people one thing, and I'm pretty sure I told this group of people something else, and now I gotta keep them separate so they don't compare notes. And it takes two lives to cover up one, four to cover up two, eight to cover up four, I mean, 16 to cover ad infinitum. One could easily lose themselves, right? We are self-deceived. The biggest point of being self-deceived for me is thinking that I could somehow get sober and do this thing called life without all of you. You want to know how really deceived I am? The idea that you all can't do it without me. That's how self-centered and deceived I am, right? And so I'm in a meeting now in San Jose, California, and I'm brand new. And somehow, I end up in the happiest fellowship in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, these people were just jumping for Bill W. I was like, oh, I'm, this is not, I'm not feeling this, right? Because remember, I still hate AA, but I got no choice. I got nowhere else to go. This is, for me, the last house on the block. And so I get a sponsor, and Jim Barry, and he is the most patient man in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, you're going to call me every day for 90 days. That's me, standing on a corner at a payphone, gather around children. There was a day there wasn't cell phones. A mobile phone was in a glass box on every other corner, and you had to put money in it to use it. And I didn't have a phone, so I had to use a payphone. I had to carry a roll of quarters in my pocket, and I would drop the quarter, and I'd call him, and I'd say, I'm checking in. He'd say, how you doing? I'd be like, okay. He's like, just okay? I'm like, just okay. He's like, have you been to a meeting yet today? I'm like, not yet. He'd say, yeah, you might want to do that. I'd say, yeah, I know. Click. I'd drop another quarter. Did you just hang up on me? He's like, yes, because you know. Call me when you don't know. Click. <laughs> another quarter. Stop hanging up on me. He said, stop knowing. Why would you seek a solution if you think you know? We're going to eradicate some words from your vocabulary. I know is gone. So is words like never and always, because those words imply a closed mind. And the way we get sober is with an open mind. And it was a challenge, I want to tell you. And so he, um, he saved my life. In short, he saved my life. But I was still angry and not happy about being an Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was a night when I just lost it. You know, um, I was part of this group called the Men and Women Together. Monday night, 200 people, big meeting, right? And they had a podium like this with a microphone and what they did was they call on you and then you have to walk up and share. And I got up there and I said, my name is Solis, I'm an alcoholic. This is my last meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they all started laughing. I was like, no, for real. Like, I don't want to be one of those people that y'all talk about at Denny's afterwards. Like, whatever happened to Solis? So I'm telling you up front that I am leaving. Right? And I'm calling people out and naming names. Right? Because I'm like, 
before I leave, I'm gonna tell you why. You, you talk about service, I've never even seen you pick up a coffee cup. You, you talk about greeting the newcomers, you're talking about the cute ones, I've never seen you shake the hand of an ugly one. You, I keep going all the way down to poor Doug H and I ran into things to say, so I said, dude, your hair is so perfect, you carry the message of good grooming. I think you're all a bunch of, I think you're all a bunch of effing sheep, and if this old timer over here walked off the cliff, the rest of you would follow, and I am not following. Good night. <laughs> if you've ever been to meetings in the Bay Area of California, when someone finishes sharing, they clap. <laughs> All of California. And that night, they cheered. They gave me a standing ovation. <laughs> the bad sister section in the back row was going, yes, And I sat down and I started crying because I had unloaded the last of my ammunition. I let you have it. And what I really wanted was people to say, you are too sick for us, you cannot stay here. Instead, there had never been a longer line at the men and women together meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to give me a hug after the meeting. My sponsor was in that line and he said, okay, we're all a bunch of effing sheep, huh? <laughs> Keep coming back. <laughs> he said, I'm going to help you with your own analogy, girl. If we're a group of sheep and the woman is represented by alcohol, which one do you think is going to pick off? The one who's trying to get away from the flock? That's been you for the last 18 months. Why don't you put your butt in the center of alcohol synonymous where it's safest and the wolf can't get you? the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, where the wolf can't get you. I'm gonna cut to the chase and give you the secret. The middle is in service. Absolutely in service, right? If you don't have a service position, if you don't have two, get three. That's the only thing I can say. And so, um, also behind him was a guy named Roger who had 50 years of sobriety, just like our friend here. And Roger, I didn't like Roger. <laughs> I didn't like Roger because my service commitment was sweeping the floor, which I liked that service commitment because it was after everybody left, right? And I could do it by myself and be left alone. And so, but Roger would stay behind and read his big book. And so I'd have to ask Roger, can you please lift your feet so I can sweep underneath it? And he'd always look up from his big book and say, hey kid, do you want to know the secret to staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous? And I'd say, yes, Roger, what's the secret to staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous? And he'd look at me and go, you're not ready. <laughs> oh, yes. I was like, oh, whatever, right? <laughs> but that night, Roger was in that line, and he got up and he goes, I think you're finally ready. Oh. The secret to staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous is simply this. And if you're new, if you're one of those people that got the big book tonight, listen to this, because this is really important. I'm giving you the secret here to staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Let us help you. That's it. Stop fighting, cease fighting everything and everyone, and let us help you. Ow! Yeah. And I had to do that. I had questions though. One of my questions was like, so when do I get this relationship? I really, you know, cause I'm pretty sure in addition to being a terminally uh, alcoholic, I'm also terminally lonely and I need a relationship. And my sponsor was like, you got that 30 day chip yet? And I was like, almost, don't hate. And he's like, well, here's the thing. So Lace, it's like God is baking the perfect cookie for you. 
in the form of a man and he'll be presented at the perfect place at the perfect time under the perfect circumstances and in the meantime it's your responsibility to practice patience in these 12 steps and i was just like really like is this in the book somewhere i have never seen this and he's like yeah just keep coming back trust me and so you know i watch my 60 day come and go and my 90 day and my six month and my nine month i got my one year chip and i'm like where is my cookie <laughs> And he said, well, here's the thing, Solis. Um, you're jumping up and down in front of this oven going, hurry, hurry, hurry. And it might not even occur to you looking in that oven door that it might be getting hot in here. Maybe you're on the inside of that oven looking out instead of outside looking in. Maybe you're somebody's cookie who's not yet ready to be presented at the perfect place at the perfect time under the perfect circumstances. Nowhere in the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous does it say happily ever after or holy matrimony. And the truth is, opening up the fourth step in the 12 and 12, Sam, right here, page. And of course, don't have my glasses. So, but it says, we have an inability to form a true partnership with another human being. And my heart fell into my stomach because I was like, what does that mean? He said, well, because of selfishness and self-centeredness being the nature of our problem, we're naturally, as alcoholics, not good candidates for relationships. And I was like, what does that mean? He was like, I guess you better deal with that selfishness and self-centeredness, right? Because in order to love someone, you'd have to be able to be able to put somebody else's needs before your own, at least on occasion, right? Compromise is not a word that alcoholics like, right? And he said, see, when we get finished with these 12 steps, we're gonna start with the 12 traditions. And the very first one talks about group unity and being paramount. What is a marriage but a group of two? And he goes, you're going to learn all about that. He goes, but for now, just know that we can't promise you that you will find love. What we can promise you is that you can have a useful and purposeful life without him. Right? That never also occurred to me. And so... um, I will cut to the chase and tell you 18 months sober, 20 months sober, the cookie rolled into the meeting about Alcoholics Anonymous. And this kind of sucked because my sponsor said, you're going, we, we did this sane, sound, sex ideal. He said, get over here with your book. We're going to do a sane, sound, sex ideal. And what he did is he gave me a piece of paper and he said, I want you to write out everything you ever wanted in a man. I was like, what? He goes, everything. Everything you ever wanted, man. I was like, I'm going to need two pieces of paper. (laughs) He said, great, you want three? Because it needs to be thorough. And I wrote it all out. And then I gave it to him. And he looked at it. And he started laughing and crossing things off. And I was like, what are you doing? That's my list. You said that was my list. I could put whatever I wanted on there. And he said, well, let's look at some of these, shall we? You'd like him to be over six feet tall? And I was like, yeah, I like a tall guy. And he's like, okay, are you over six feet tall? I was like, well, no. He said, yeah, asking something for nothing in exchange is exactly the definition of selfishness. You can't ask for anything on this list that you yourself cannot deliver in return. Let's look at this one. Monogamous? Oh, shoot. I knew we were in trouble. Because by the time we got finished with that list, we had crossed off all the good stuff, right? I'm like, I could be blonde. He's like, from a bottle. We're crossing that one off. When we got finished, we were left with things like kind, considerate, you know, boring stuff. 
But he drew a little checkbox next to each thing, and he said, now you have your list. See, you've been off shooting off arrows or whatever it is you're shooting, and you have never had a target. You now know what is your target. So you're ready to start dating. And I was like, oh, okay. So when the cookie rolled in, because he had made it an assignment for me to ask somebody in AA out, I was like, not AA, no, that's not gonna happen. No, honey, this is like shopping in the irregular section. <laughs> it's a big scratch and dent sale in here, and I have no intention of ever finding someone in this place. And he said, or you may find someone on a parallel spiritual path. You ever stop think about that? Where's that open mind? And so he said, get on over there and ask him out. So I came back and I said, I can't do it. I'm not ready for sex yet. He said, sex? Who said anything about sex? <laughs> he said, I said dating. Do you know what dating is? I was like, I think I do. He's like, no, you don't. Dating is merely gathering information. That's it. You ask somebody to coffee, maybe to lunch, and you spend no more than one hour asking them questions that will get to the meat of these answers on these checkboxes that you have, right? You're not holding auditions for a life partner, and you're not conducting interviews for a soulmate, so stop getting so wound up about it. You're just having coffee with someone no different than you have coffee with your friends before the AA meeting, right? And at the end of one hour, you're done. I know you'll want more than one hour because you're selfish. He goes, but you excuse yourself. You go home to each respective residence. This is a point you always seem to forget. And then in the morning when you're doing your prayer and your meditation, you ask God, did I gather enough information? You're only going to get one or two answers. Either I gather more information than I ever wanted or needed, or I need more information. He goes, either way, you pick up the phone, you call the person, and you say, I really had a good time yesterday at coffee. I feel like I've made a new friend in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope to see you in a meeting sometime. Goodbye. You've left no ambiguity about what it was, where it is, where it's going. Or you say, I feel like I've made a new friend in AA. I really enjoyed myself. Do you think you might be able to do that again in two weeks? I'm like, two weeks? He's like, yeah. He goes, yeah, you're an impatient alcoholic. You want more information and you want it now and preferably horizontally, but that's not how this is going to go. We went on a date. It was the worst date in history of dates. Um, only because I found out we had absolutely nothing in common. Nothing in common, right? Um, so we're sitting at this restaurant, and then he's telling me about watercolors, because he's an artist. And I'm thinking, like, nobody should ever get this excited about watercolors. Right? And, um, but as he's talking, I realize that, oh, I think this is passion. Because the more he's talking about it, the louder he's talking and the more excited he's getting. And I'm thinking, oh shoot, that's on my list. I put it on my list because it sounded good. But you know what? I don't think I'd actually ever seen it. I'd only ever seen obsession. They're not the same thing. And I thought, how could somebody find something that doesn't have to do with drugs and alcohol be so excited about it? I was in love. And then he checked another box. And then he checked another box. By the time he finished checking all the boxes, after several weeks, I went to my sponsor and I said, he checked all the boxes. He's like, oh my God, congratulations. Sounds like you found one. I was like, no, he can't be it. He cannot be it. We have nothing in common. Yeah. Right? And he's like, oh, okay. Well, you know, when you're out fishing, sometimes you catch a fish that's too small and you throw it back. You're welcome to throw this one back. But you have forfeited your right to complain about this forever. I don't ever want to hear you talk about relationships again. We're done. You picked him. You wrote the list. It was your criteria. I was like, ugh. 
So this is 25 years later, I'm standing before a judge, and for once, I'm not being called the defendant. He's asking, do you want to take this cookie to be your lawfully wedded husband? <laughs> Rob and I have now been together for 32 years. You can absolutely clap. This girl, gay relationship years are like dog years. That's a long time. That's like 100 years, really. I don't even know. And when people ask me, how do you stay together with someone for 32 years? I say it takes more love than you can possibly comprehend, more tolerance, patience, love, and understanding than you can even dream of. That's why you have to ask Rob how he does it. I don't know. <laughs> I'd have kicked my butt to the curb many times, right? Many, many times. And I can't even begin to tell you all the things that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me and done for me. It's just not enough time up here. You know, um, my sobriety date is January 1st, 1988, for which I'm eternally grateful. If you're new, just know resentment is the number one offender. If we get twisted up enough and long enough, we'll eventually have to untwist. And if we don't untwist, we will untwist a bottle cap. And that's just never a good place to be. You know, most of the reasons that we get twisted up are romances and finances. Or as we say in the gay fellowship, dicks and dollars. Ah. And, <laughs> don't get hung up. The Waipaw Fellowship is here for you. The Waipaw Fellowship is amazing. It is the future of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is why I will always say yes to the requests of the Waipaws. And if you knew me in Austin, you would know I go to the Waipaw events. I, I met my friend at the kickball event, and he came, Reagan came with me this weekend from Austin. And I go every, thanks, every time they invite me to a Waipaw event, the answer is always going to be yes. Uh, because I absolutely love being around you. And do you know why? Because you remind me of why I came back. The reason I came back, we can sit around and we can, we can talk all night about our experience and strength, and that's great. But what I needed in my life was hope. And you all give me hope when I see how excited you are and how you dance around and how you carry on and how you love each other. It restores my hope, and I need that. I absolutely need that, right? I didn't have that when I got here. And I had two suicide attempts, and it wasn't because I was not happy, and it wasn't because I was too sad. It was because I was existing. I drank alcohol because I didn't want to exist for just a minute. It didn't give me popularity, it didn't give me fame, it didn't give me friends, but for an evening, I didn't care that I didn't have those things. That's what alcohol did for me. It is not my friend, it is not your friend, it is an indiscriminate killer, it will kill you. And you know, um, if you stay around these rooms long enough, you will see people die. I remind myself that every breath that I take is someone else's I remind myself that have gratitude for everything that I've been given in this life and in this world. I'll wrap up with just a few things. So I spent my life trying my best to not know. My mother um, was very ill um, just before the pandemic. 
and um, I got that call that nobody wants to get, which is they don't think mom's going to make it until morning. And I'm in Texas, and she's in Sacramento. So now I've got to wait until 5 in the morning for the next flight to California. And I'm just praying that I make it in time to say goodbye. And I get there, and my mother's there, and she's um, conscious. And uh, and I'm so happy that I made it. And I, um, I'm holding her hand, and she says to me, um, and my, I should say that my mother finally found sobriety. So my mother and I had a very c- big connection. We spoke the same language. I don't think my siblings understood how tight we were, right? They thought it was weird that mom and I just, we, we clung together, right? But I pushed everybody out of the way, my, I'm, you know, all my brothers, and I held my mother's hand, and she, she looked up at me, and she said, I'm scared. And I said, I know. I said, but I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. And she said, I know. And in that moment, I realized when I've struggled throughout my sobriety to not know, there are some things that I need to know. And that is, I need you to know that I love you. And I need to know that you love me. And it's reflected by our actions, right? And like I was saying, you know, my friends that have heard me a hundred times and still come out and, and spend time with me. And and um, and all the hospitality that the Oklahoma Fellowship always shows me every time I come, right? The hardest amends ever that I experienced was actually one that was made to me. It was my mother when I was 10 years sober and we were driving from Sacramento to Los Angeles and my mother had had a stroke by this time and she uh, would cry at the drop of a hat and we were driving and she said, I've got something to tell you, but I can't tell you now. She started crying. And by the time we got to Fresno, she said, okay, I think I'm ready. No, I'm not ready. She started crying. We get to Bakersfield and she says, okay, I think I'm ready. I robbed you of a childhood. Our family business was a bar. I was the oldest of five. My mother was a single parent. She was in the bar all the time. I cooked, I cleaned, I raised my brothers and sister. And she said, I don't know how to atone for that. How do you give somebody back their childhood? She said, if you will tell me what I can do, I will set it right. And I looked at her, because I was looking ahead at the road and I was starting to tear up. And just as soon as I teared up, it went away. And I turned to her and I said, it's okay, mom, I'm all right. And what was surprising to me about that exchange was that I meant it. Because we'd rehearsed that conversation in my head a million times. And in my version, I always turned to her and said, you're damn right you're sorry. You're the sorriest person that ever lived, right? But when the moment had finally come, we had both experienced the miracle that is recovery, right? I now know that I am the culmination of everything that I've been through and that I have become, right? The good, the bad, the ugly. Stop calling it trauma. Stop calling it bad. Stop calling it horrible. The truth is that all of those things now serve me because they're in my kit of spiritual tools. I pull them out when you come into the room dragging your ass behind you going like, I don't know if I can stay sober. I have been traumatized. And I say, honey, I know. I know because it's been me too. And I've stayed sober for 34 years and you can certainly stay sober for the next 34 minutes. I'll sit with you during the meeting, right? And that's how it works. Before there was 12 steps, before there was 12 traditions, before any of that, it was simply one alcoholic working with another. Alcoholics Anonymous was born June 10th, 1935, and the big book didn't come out until 1939. But for those first four years, they didn't know what they were doing. They tried everything. And this came about, I got to host one time when I was uh, working on a conference committee um, 
Bob Smith Jr., Dr. Bob's son. And it was such an honor, such an honor to host him because, you know, I got to ask all the questions I ever wanted to ask. And he was a teenager when uh, they were bringing stray alcoholics home and he was telling me they didn't know what it was. They didn't have the 12 steps. So they just were spending time with each other, but they thought it might have something to do with diet. So they were feeding them stewed tomatoes. They were feeding them sauerkraut. When they hit the carol syrup, it was like, ding, 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 ding. It works, right? And so it's one alcoholic spending time with another. You do not have to have finished your 12 steps in order to sponsor. I was only on step three when I picked up my first sponsee, and my sponsor said, don't let him get ahead of you. You better stay ahead of him. It kept me on fire because he caught up to me at nine, and I had to relight my fire to get my steps done. I'm going to wrap up with my favorite passage from the big book. And this has special to meaning to me because I never got to show you the um, the slide. That's me laying in the middle of the road. I used to, whenever I went into blackout, I would get suicidal. <laughs> you know, one of those fun tearing a beer drunks in the corner going like, oh, nobody loves me. <laughs> I'm out of here. Y'all are going to be sorry. And I'd go lay in the middle of the street and hope to get run over. <laughs> so the first time I read this passage, it really spoke to me. If you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. No middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and we had, <clears throat> and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help. And alcoholics are the only people who I know who need a minute to think about it. Like, so you're saying happy, joyous, and free, or death, insanity, and institutions. Can you tell me a little bit more about the bitter end and what that looks like? <laughs> you're all here, and we're all here together, and that's part of the miracle. Let's have another miracle tomorrow and the day after. Thank you so much for having me.